just opening up my Bible to Acts chapter 3 and 4, so if you want to turn to those, otherwise there will be some text which will come up on the screen, and you'll see alongside it, it says, we're not, we're not, I'm not actually going to read out the whole text, but encourage us, when we come to the text which comes up on the screen, please read it with me, because I think that it's actually reading God's word together is something which is really powerful. And one thing I always do in my own quiet time is I read God's word out loud. And that always means, means something special to me. I think it's great that you're, doing, that you're going through the Acts of the Apostles. It's such an exciting book, seeing what God was doing at that time. And topic two, the church is persecuted. No, topic two, only number two. So it happens very, very quickly in the life of the church, doesn't it? Have a listen to this. This doesn't come from scripture. This comes from a book written by a friend of mine who passed to glory earlier in the year. One of our retirees. I've got some of her books here. There was now a core group of believers being discipled and in regular attendance at meetings. Our team was called in individually for questioning at the Central Police Bureau. We were accused of being Zionist spies and of paying locals to come to us. They were unable to believe that our only motivation in being there was to teach the Bible. We didn't worry too much about too much until pressure was put on the local believers themselves. The thing is, the thought was that as as workers, they were going to be expelled fairly soon, imminent, fairly soon anyway. So they were sort of okay. They might lose their homes, they might lose their work, but they were, weren't going to be killed. The local believers, it might be different for them. The believers were called in and were asked how much they paid us and what else we were teaching. Some of the young men were treated roughly. One in particular, though, made the most of the opportunity to share the gospel with his interrogators who spat on him. As I say, that's a little excerpt from a book just come out called New Every Morning by Muriel Butcher. She served in North Africa and in the south of France. The church in the country where she was serving is still small, but it is growing despite the fact that over the last few years, the authorities have been closing down some of the churches there. The majority of the Christians there, you see, are converts from Islam. As such, they're the ones who are most at risk of persecution. Not just from their family or their extended family, but from the wider community. Reason being, believers from a Muslim background bring shame on the family and on their community. And this morning we're going to delve into a number of verses in chapters 3 and 4 of Acts. And then we'll, what we'll do, we'll see that Muriel's experience is echoed, or echoes a lot of what Peter and John experienced. But before we do so, we're going to go back to see the, the last verse of chapter 2, or the last verses of chapter 2. And it says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In the first two chapters of Acts, you see that the church is born 
and it increases in numbers daily. The church is alive and growing. And then chapter 3 starts with the words, one day. We don't know how much time passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, but it wasn't long. And then there's this little event that happens. One afternoon, but it results in persecution. We sang earlier a children's song. It was sometimes considered a children's song. Wide, wide is the ocean. And these words, well, chapter 3 begins with what we know as a children's song. Now, don't we? Acts, it's taken from Acts 3, verses 3 to 8. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. But these are the words. Peter and John went to pray. Do you know it? Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for arms and he held out his palms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Aren't you pleased I didn't sing it? Afterwards, and after that had happened, there's this crowd of people who realize a guy among them, the guy that they knew who'd been seated begging at the beautiful gate for a long, long time, he's been healed. He's been healed. They're filled with wonder. They're filled with amazement. And then others come running who hadn't actually seen what happened. And it says, Scripture says that they're astonished. So you've got three great words. Wonder, amazement, and astonishment because they've seen a guy that they've known for a long time, but he's now been healed. And if it had just been a healing, things probably wouldn't, would have been different. They wouldn't have panned out the way they did. But as you read on in the text, it says that Peter speaks to the crowd about Jesus, whom they killed, but whom Jesus raised to life. And I invite you to join me to say, having problems with this, what's it say? This is what Peter said to them. Let's read it together. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. But then he continues. I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. So he's not exactly blaming them for it. Not really blaming them, but he's making it very clear what's happened. And then he tells them what they need to do. Repent and return to God so that your sins may be wiped out. It's good, isn't it? Good powerful stuff. And while Peter is still preaching, he's preaching to the people at the moment. The, te the text tells us that the captain of the temple guard, effectively the police, and the Sadducees, now they're the liberal, they're the ruling party, they came up and they were greatly disturbed. That's what the text says, greatly disturbed. And they seized Peter and John and put them in jail. Note what also happens. This is verse 4 of chapter 4. Here we go. Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So here we've got Peter sharing the good news. Lots of people come to faith. And now, end of chapter 2, 
numbers were growing. Here we've got 5,000 men. Where were the women? They were in the court of women. So they probably hadn't heard what he'd been going on about. So, there, so Peter and John are imprisoned, but the church grows. Persecution has started. The next day, text tells us, Peter is able to speak again. This time it's not a group who saw the healing, but it's a who's who of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. You've got the rulers, you've got the elders, you've got the teachers of the, of the law. It's the Jewish leaders. And Peter again lets them have it. No beating about the bush. He's bold, he's clear, and he's to the point. They crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And then he says this. Ready? Let's go. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now it's the turn of the Jewish leaders to be astonished. How dare an uneducated layman speak with such confidence to their Jewish leaders? They're the experts in this sort of thing, not them. Then look at verse 13. Ready? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. Then look at the next verse. The guy whom they had healed was standing there. They could see that he'd been healed. They couldn't deny it. It had happened. Then verses 18 to 23. The Jewish leaders, they have a private chat. And they tell Peter and John not to speak, not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here's a question for you. What do you think you would have done? These same Jewish leaders helped put Jesus to death. They've already arrested you, and you spent a night in prison. And now they tell you that you mustn't speak a word about Jesus to anyone. If you want a quiet life, you're going to obey them. But what do, what's the response that Peter and John give? Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're compelled. We can't help telling people about what we've seen Jesus do, what Jesus has done for us. Now, this is Peter talking. Remember, it's not that long ago that Peter was denying that he even knew Jesus. And the response? That just brings more threats. That's verse 21. But then you read on a little bit further. Peter and John, they go back to their, their fellow believers and they tell them everything that's happened. That's verse 25. And then jump on a few verses. And now we join Peter and John and their fellow believers in a prayer meeting, responding to the opposition. Now this is how they respond. Just at the first one. Oh, here we are. Let's go. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal 
and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, that was where he got his boldness from. They've been imprisoned, they've been threatened, but it's not going to stop them. No way. So that's our text this morning, and the title is The Church is Persecuted. What can we learn from, briefly from these early chapters of Acts on the subject of the church is persecuted? Here we go. Persecution is to be expected as part of God's good plan. To be honest, that's not what we want to hear, is it? It would be nicer to hear, come to Jesus and everything will be rosy. And I always think, but roses have got thorns. Remember Jesus' own words from John 15, verse 18 and 20. Have I got this up there? No, not yet. If the world hates you, this is what Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. What is persecution? The Cambridge Dictionary defines persecution as this, unfair or cruel treatment over a long period of time because of race, religion or political beliefs. And if you think that Christians have been persecuted since the first century, that's a long time, isn't it? Christian persecution can take many forms. But it's any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus. Open Doors tell us that over 340 million people in the world are experiencing high levels of persecution as we speak this morning. But why does it happen? Surely Christians are good people? Good people who think of others? And going back to the text of Acts chapters 3 and 4, we can see several reasons straight away. We'll run through these quickly. The message of the cross is unacceptable. They're proclaiming the message of the resurrection of the dead. People don't like what's being said. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were sad, you see. The Jewish leaders knew a miracle had been done, but they didn't want anyone to hear about it. They had closed minds, they had vested interests. Their roles meant that they had position in society and they did not want to lose those roles. They did not want to lose those positions. Going into the next chapter, chapter 5, you'll find out that the leaders were filled with jealousy because there were the signs and the wonders and more and more people were beginning to believe in the Lord. The church is alive and active and growing and people are jealous of that. Then from those words of Jesus that we read just now, the world hates Jesus. Each one of those reasons remains valid even today, but you could go on. There's religious fanaticism, there's religion. There is suspicion of anything outside of a culture's majority faith. Some people say that, the, that if you're an Arab, you are a Muslim. 
That's actually strictly not true, but people say if you're an Arab, you are a Muslim. And if you're not Muslim, but you're still an Arab, you can be persecuted. As I mentioned earlier, it's true that if you come to faith in an, an Islamic country, you will be at risk of persecution. Even those who leave Islam and turn to Christ in other countries are still at risk because there's no right for them to change their religion. Some governments view Christianity as a real threat. There are plenty of other reasons. They're just for starters. But from what Jesus said, persecution is to be expected. The palm ministry that I had mentioned earlier meets a massive need. In the young church in the Arab world, new believers very quickly encounter massive opposition. And for many of them, it's too much. But Palm offers, as I said earlier, offers discipleship. And there are a number of levels and courses. And level one is discipleship for new believers. And one of the courses there is actually looking at persecution. There are five lessons on persecution. The stated objective of the course is the understanding that persecution is to be expected as part of God's good plan. This is what the introduction to the course says. For those who follow the Lord Jesus, persecution comes in many forms. From being ridiculed or insulted for our faith, to being shunned or refused employment, to being physically beaten or tortured. But all have their source in the hatred that this world has for the Lord Jesus and those who love him. Secondly, We should seek to share the gospel even with those who are doing the persecuting. Really? Really? Peter and John refused to be cowed into silence. Remember, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And they prayed that believers would be able to hear God's word, or believers would be able to speak God's word with boldness. But do you note what is not there? What's not there? Nowhere does Peter say that the pers- does Peter pray that the persecution should be taken away? And if we were honest, that's where we would often start, isn't it? We don't want to face persecution. One of the best books I've ever read on prayer is called Prayer: The Real Battle by Brother Andrew. And at one point, he quotes the words of an Egyptian pastor who was asked how Western Christians could pray for their persecuted brothers and sisters. Now, this is what Brother Andrew wrote in his book, the words of the Egyptian pastor. If you pray for us, you will pray the wrong things. You will pray that the church will be safe. You will pray for persecution to cease. We are not praying for these things. We ask for the salvation of Egypt. We ask that he draw millions to Christ. We ask that we will be bold and clear in sharing our faith with Muslims. And we pray that when the inevitable, notes that, inevitable persecution comes, that we will not run away. That we will be faithful in that persecution, even if it costs us our lives. Will you tell your friends to pray these prayers with us? That sounds like a Peter and John prayer, doesn't it? Passionately holding on to Christ and sharing faith with those who are persecuting. 
offering them an opportunity to hear and respond to the love of Christ. Reaching out in love and friendship to them. Wide, wide is the ocean. Otherwise, what will they face? A lost eternity. There's a young man in a North African country who came to faith less than three years ago. His journey started when he started reading the Bible. And persecution actually started for him when his family asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm reading the Bible. At the time, he was not even a believer. He was thrown out of the family home. His bedroom was cleared, everything taken outside and burned. He brought shame to the family. And there had been many threats on his life. Contracts had been taken out on his life. At one point, the family found him, and they interrogated him for a few days. And then they left him. They left him with some food for him to eat. But there was a maid in that house, and that maid whispered in his ear, don't eat that food, it's been poisoned. So he didn't. He's led many people to faith in his city, and he's discipling them. But the persecution for him comes in cycles. He very recently led another member of his family to faith in Christ. And so the family is out to get him again. He's currently in a safe house, but he remains confident in the Lord. Thirdly, ready for this? Again, these words taken from Scripture, we should rejoice for the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. This is from the next round of persecution in chapter 5, where the apostles, it's not just Peter and John any longer, it's just the apostles are imprisoned. Luke doesn't make a big deal of it. He just says, they're imprisoned. Fair enough. Then even in verse 40, we're told that the apostles were flogged and ordered to not to speak in the name of Jesus again. Flogging is one of the most inhumane things that one person can do to another, wrote one teacher. Another imprisonment and a flogging, there's been another Peter sermon. And the response of the apostles, this is chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That doesn't seem the most natural thing to do. And they probably didn't always feel like rejoicing. But it's all about attitude. What would be our attitude if we faced something like that? Think about how you would respond in in these scenarios. I've borrowed these questions from Open Doors again. The question is this. What if... How would you feel? What if... What if your church had to meet in secret... Would you rejoice or not? What if you were put in prison for your faith? What if spies were watching your every move or your family threw you out because of your faith? What if owning a Bible was illegal? What if 
following Jesus meant facing violence or death. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Jakub was a high-ranking official in the army in his country. He was doing well. He was happy with his life, his friends, his position. He could consider himself a Muslim, but he didn't care too much about it. He didn't fast during Ramadan. He didn't reserve, observe the religious duties. And his commander watched him and saw that he wasn't a particularly good Muslim. And in the mess hall, someone slandered a known Jew. And Yacoub jumped to his defense, said that he's done nothing wrong. That was enough. The commander referred to Yacoub as both a Jew and a Christian and got him fired. As a result of which, he became a traitor to his country and he had to flee. Where did he find himself? In a refugee camp in Europe. It's difficult. Life is difficult there. And he found an Arabic New Testament one day on the floor. Someone who'd been there before had left it there. And he picked it up and started reading it. And it spoke to him. He got out his phone. He searched for guidance from the internet. Back to Google again. He found our media websites and got chatting to one of our responders. He gave his life to Christ. He says this, I don't know what's going to happen to me. My asylum application was rejected, but I can't go back to my country. Life is difficult for me here in the camp, but whatever happens, Christ is with me. Rejoicing for suffering in the name of Christ, which takes us on very briefly to the final thought. What do we do if we're not persecuted? Do we still have a role? Skip forward a few books and you'll find Hebrews chapter 13 where it says these words. Let's read these together. Hebrews 13.3 Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and to those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Here in the UK, we may feel that as a church we're being marginalised, that we're not being heard. But Simon Calvert, who is the Deputy Director for Public Affairs at the Christian Institute, says this, that it says that it's wrong to speak of persecution in Britain. He says, we have to be very careful about using the word persecution here in the United Kingdom. We enjoy freedoms and religious liberties of a kind which most Christians in most of the world for most of human history could only dream of. So with that in mind, let's not forget those who are being persecuted. Now, as I said earlier, there are 340 million of our brothers and sisters. That's one in eight suffering high levels of persecution. But let's also, let's remember them. Let's pray for them. But let's also remember that God is with them. When he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I am with you always. Our God is faithful. Chris asked me to choose our final song. 
Thank you. It's a song, the song I've chosen is called Never Once. It's written by Matt Redman. And I've sung this song with people working in the Arab world, knowing people are really going through it, knowing people are being really persecuted for their faith. And they're serving in places where there is persecution, severe persecution. So these words are very alive for them. Words like this, scars and struggles on the way. Is it coming up? Here we go. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy our hearts can say, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. Yes, the church is persecuted. But no, those who are being persecuted are not alone. They're not forgotten. God is with us. God is with them. And God, even though his church is being persecuted, is still on his throne and he's still drawing people to himself. So let's stand together, give the band a chance to